VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, May the 6th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is back in the producer's chair today for the Come On With It edition of Open Line. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So checking in on the Canadian-based NHL teams in the playoffs, Calgary, who dominated Dallas in game number one, Fell 2-0 yesterday, so Dallas has tied up the series with the Calgary Flames. I want to say good luck to the members of the Swimming NL Provincial Team. They are off to the Dr. Ralph Hicken International Mississauga. That started yesterday, runs through the 8th. So 41 swimmers are on the team. You can check in with Swimming NL's social media platform. There's going to be a coach's corner every single day. Highlights of the swim meet hosted by Provincial Coach Duffy Earl. So good luck to our swimmers in the pool in Mississauga. Began yesterday, runs through Sunday. All right, we had a great story this morning about a gentleman named Junior Goss from Cornerbrook. And good morning to you, Junior, if you're tuned in this morning. Former member of the Royal Newfoundland Regiment. He is a, he had a 28-year career in the Canadian Forces, but I left him with some PTSD and other injuries sustained while he was in the military. Interesting career, to say the very least. So posted in no, numerous places throughout Canada, Iran, Somalia. Notably, in November of 1979, Goss was one of the military police officers on security detail at the Canadian Embassy in the Iranian capital, of course, of Tehran, who assisted with the rescue of the six diplomats during the hostage crisis at the U.S. Emb- embassy in Iran, 1979. That's fascinating. Since Mr. Goss has retired from the military, he's now taken up the charge as an athlete who has competed in the Invictus Games. Interestingly enough, he was the flag bearer representing Canada at the most recent Invictus Games that were held in the Netherlands. He goes on to say that, you know, this has been a really big deal, and for some former members of the military, a life-saving opportunity to participate in sports, to commiserate, and to uh, celebrate athletics with former military members from around the world. So here's a quote directly from Mr. Goss. The thing about competing in these games is that it's not about winning. Just being there and being part of it is what counts. Every time there was an event that finished, there was no presentation of gold, silver, and bronze medals, and that was the last thing you heard about. So there was no counts, no scoreboards, participation, friendship, and that was the key of the Invictus Games. And congratulations, Mr. Goss, for being celebrated as the flag bearer for Canada at the Invictus Games. If you're listening this morning, Junior, we'd love to have a chat about your Invictus Games experience if you are so inclined. And I'll just stick it with sports for a second. And this is vastly different than Mr. Goss' experience at the Invictus Games. Betting on sports has long been a part of it. A huge part of the popularity of the NFL, for instance, is surrounding betting. Fantasy football and the like. And people, you know, betting on the ponies, the sport of kings, it's not new. But now that we've seen the legalization of single-game betting in Canada... It's unbelievable the change in tune in sports shows, whether it be the coverage of live sporting events and or the highlight shows. It is so blatantly obvious that that's where their bread is buttered at this point because it's nonstop talking about the betting. Look, it doesn't bother me necessarily. It's just a stark change in how sports are presented, even in the live baseball games. An awful lot of reference to what the odds are and the floating odds during games and the odds for one particular at-bat or another. Even if you watch SportsCenter, it is all about the money these days. Now, it was always about the money, but some of that was advertising dollars as opposed to what is now a pretty obvious relationship with the sport betting sites. 
Now, betting can be fun when it's done in moderation. You know the same thing with all of our vices. If you have a handle on it, good for you. But it's really something else to see just how quickly all of that has changed. Okay, moving on. Talk a little tourism. You know, people travel for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's to see whether a particular museum or basilicas or the Eiffel Tower, which opened its uh, opened as the entrance arch to the Exposition Universelle, the World's Fair, marking the centennial celebration of the French Revolution back in 1889. The Eiffel Tower opened up. All right, so tourism a little closer to home. So yesterday we talked about the busy season on tap for Cornerbrook and the cruise ships. They have 24 ships on the docket. In St. John's, there's about 30 that are going to arrive, some 37,000 passengers, excluding crew numbers. So it can indeed be a boost. You know, there's always been a debate about how much money should be spent on the cruise industry. The city of St. John's spends about $62,000 in an effort to bring ships to this port. Good for the restaurants, good for the tourism operators, good for the port authority itself. The guesstimation is that the tourists will spend between 40 and 50 or $60 each when they make their way on shore. That's nothing to sneeze at. The numbers told by the city is that the cruise industry injects about $10 million worth of economic activity when the, cruise, the cruises arrive. And I guess, like I said yesterday regarding Cornerbrook, the next big wave of economic upside might be if they like what they saw in their very short visit and decide to come back for an extended stay at some time in the future. But the cruise industry just about to kick off and sticking with tourism. I'm just wondering if any of you listening to the program this morning have considered or absolutely planning on intending on registering your vehicle to be on the Toro car sharing app. When you talk about the fact that people are looking for opportunities to bring a few extra dollars in, there seems to be a lot of safeguards involved with being on the Toro application. You know, the screening of guests and the type of vehicle and the age of the vehicle and the numbers of kilometers that could be acceptable. And yes, there's insurance that's covered with the 30% commission that Toro takes and their relationship with economical insurance. But I'm just curious if any of you are planning on being part of Toro. All right, let's stick with some online work. So according to the Minister of Digital Governance Service NL, that's Sarah Studley, the issue with how many people are frustrated with to all get out since the beginning of the week with the MyGovNL user interface and it's down. So people are trying to go on and uh, renew their MCP card, get a wood cutting permit, several other motor vehicle registration services. People don't have any access. So there's a third party involved here called Vivo. That's the company that hosts the MyGovNL user face. Uh, Minister Stulley says that the outage is unacceptable, and we don't know when it's going to be resolved. She goes on to say that, you know, the immediate concern is getting the services restored and then to take a look at the long term. They think they may have made a mistake when they built the solution. That's Vivo made a mistake, uh, which means that we might have made a mistake or the government made a mistake in their eventual relationship with this particular company. So, you know, while we look at what was once the way government operated and counter service versus what has been a very, I would suggest, quick transition to more and more digital online services. It's easy enough for me, but it's not easy enough for many. It can be convenient for some, but not for all. But if government's going to move this way, then these types of things have to be avoided at all costs. It's not about pointing a finger of blame either, but if that's the way you want us to operate and interact with government, for a variety of services, then a week-long outage is an extremely frustrating issue because some of these things are immediate needs. And yes, it's easy enough to say, well, you can indeed still go to motor vehicle and do whatever. Yeah, but that's been changed. Some of these 
access points have not been what people have been used to in years past. So change is always hard, but if you want us to change our behaviors and how we interact with the government, then you have to ensure that it's as reliable as possible. So you wonder what the contractual fallout will be for Vivo. You know, are there any penalties in line? Same thing with GE and their ongoing glitch in the software for the Labrador Island Link. Are we on the hook for all of these things? Or do we have some of these issues baked into the contracts where we get some reprieve and these companies pay some penalties? Because it's not it's not on me to just oh shrug my shoulders. Oh well that's it but you know that those things happen. It's a long, long week. I just stick with the online world here for a minute. Social media can be very helpful. It's a nice way to interact with your friends from afar, check out a few photos on the old crack book, and you know the deal. But it's become far too commonplace, a very toxic environment. And it does indeed allow for the misinformation and disinformation to be distributed wide and far. And you know the old saying, a lie is halfway around the world before the truth gets out of bed. So when we look at trying to control disinformation, look, it's a really difficult piece of business. I don't really want government to tell me what I can say, but there's a difference between an opinion and factually demonstrable disinformation that floats around so often. The question will be, who becomes the arbiter of truth? But then you listen to people who are part of CSIS, for instance. So this gentleman's name, oh, da, 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 da. the CSIS director, that's David Vigneault, that's the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, he says there has got to be more done to fight it. Disinformation, misinformation, propaganda, hate speech. He goes on to take it to great extents, you know, talking about the potential for some nefarious or bad actors to purposefully spread this information to interrupt Canadian cohesion, which I think is important because if you look around, it's not necessarily as div divided a country as people, some people like to pretend it is on a variety of, of issues that have you know, re really had very bright light shone on them during the pandemic. But even at CSIS, they're talking about what has to be done. So, again, I think it's a good idea to try to not control the narrative, not for government to tell me what I can and cannot say, but how we deal with some of the disinformation. Because, remember, some of that stuff is not just purpose purposefully placed by Canadians necessarily. There are bad actors around the world, and it's well understood, that whether it be Chinese influence or Iranians or Russians, and it's not all, oh my God, the Russians fixed the election, and blah, blah, blah. But I think there's a legitimate concern to be had here. So these are very targeted, aren't they? And you can tell quite quickly when some of these things come to pass. Here's a, what he said to students that he spoke to at the University of British Columbia. Canada is an attractive target for foreign interference. Hostile activity by state actors also targets the fabric of Canada's multicultural society, seeking to influence Canadian communities through threats, manipulation, and coercion. Some of these communities are being exploited to advance the interest of the offending state, which is obviously absolutely true. And it's becoming more and more common now that more and more of our activity is in the palm of our hands as we spend so much time online, sticking with online. Canada has become one of the first countries in the world that requires the online crowdfunding platforms to report to its anti-money laundering and terrorist financing watchdog, which is the Financial Transactions and Reports and Analysis Center here in the country. It's our financial intelligence unit. Okay. So, again... People will be quick to say, you know, boy, oh boy, government is getting really invasive here on these fronts. But if we have large donations of over $10,000 going toward, towards whatever effort, 
isn't it important for all of us to know, regardless of where you land on the political spectrum, regardless of your ideology, regardless of the policies or politicians you support or the activities or protests that you're behind, isn't it a good idea to know where the money's coming from? So immediately people will say, well, this is just a retaliation based on the protest in Ottawa, the convoy, the trucker convoy. And immediately on these postings on social media, well, someone will say, well, does that also go for Black Lives Matter? How about this? How about it goes for it all? Because if the money is coming from some dark corners in an effort, like the CSIS uh, executive director says, for purposefully trying to interrupt Canadian cohesion and societal calm, isn't it important that we know where this money comes from? So if it's large donations over $10,000 get reported to this particular financial intelligence agency, I don't care what the protest is about. But if the money's coming from bad actors, isn't that important? So yes, you can land on the trucker convoy. Yes, you can land on BLM. Yes, you can land on whatever protest takes place on any issue in any community right across the country. But we know full well there's lots of people out there who are trying to advocate and to further their own needs and wants versus what's best for the country. So anyway, those are two pretty interesting online-related matters that we can talk about if you're so inclined. Moving from online to putting our hands in the dirt, in the soil. We know the government's talked about trying to double food production here, knowing full well we import some 90% of what we consume. So they expanded the offering to someone who wanted to bring forward their business model in the agricultural world, some 65,000 additional hectares. It's been slow, moving at a snail's pace, to say the very least. But now this season, this growing season, is going to be very difficult for a lot of farming operations, given what they say is a skyrocketing in the price of fertilizer, feed, and fuel. So whether it's because of the global demand on fertilizer and what is the breadbasket of Europe now compromised at war with the Ukraine, Russia and Ukraine, of course. But if, for instance, the cost of fertilizer, which is really necessary to ensure a good yield, the cost has increased 100% over the last year. So they're looking at government and saying, if the food production is, uh, is as important as you say it is, and of course it is, then they may need some government support to weather this particular season. Remember last year, grain crops, certainly in Western Canada, there was a 30% decrease in the yield due to drought. We cannot afford to have less and less locally produced food because of these issues. They're hard to avoid. Look, you know, people will say if your business doesn't stand on its own two feet, then your business is not a business. It's an opportunity to be a welfare state. No. Some of these farms, smaller operations, are up against it. They've been taking on the massive, com the mega commercial farms that has really made it difficult for what used to be the opportunity for a family to start a farm, to grow for themselves and to grow for the nearly the near surrounding area. But these costs are real, and it's in all our best interest if these farms are viable. And I'll throw it out there one more time. Maybe, just maybe, greenhouses everywhere. Trained people at one of the colleges to operate the creation of jobs, the security of food, reliability, locally produced. There's just every upside in the world, as far as I can see, with some of these greenhouses that I think would be an excellent idea. Okay. Uh, hopefully, Tina Davies. If you're listening, hopefully you join us this morning. We had a very brief conversation yesterday with Tina. She's working with students, going to schools, talking about mental health matters, and in particular, focusing in on when anxiety worry, despair, moves all the way down the road to suicide ideations. This is a difficult conversation, but an important one. So hopefully we'll pick it up with Tina 
this morning. She said she had time, and I hope she does. But also now we have some new information from the Canadian Institute for Health Information. It's about the toll that the pandemic has taken on children and teens across the country. The issue surrounding eating disorders is really quite something else. So Tracy Johnson, she's the Director of Health System Analytics with CIHI, she says about 17% of children in Newfoundland and Labrador who have been hospitalized have been so because mental health, while nationally, it's one in four, but it's 17% here. The rate of hospitalization for children for eating disorders is about 30 per 100,000 in this province compared with 20 per 100,000 nationally, an increase of roughly 30% over pre-pandemic levels. So maybe it's time that we touch base again with the Eating Disorder uh, Foundation here in the province to see what they're seeing on the ground. But so whether it be about eating disorders and other ways that the pandemic has taken its toll on all of us, and certainly inside the age demographic of children and teenagers. But that story is on our website if you'd like to find out a bit more about it. And I do see a story. This is from Lynn Moore lawyer here in the province. We know that some 11 women came forward to Miss Moore to say that they had been sexually assaulted by a member of the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary. Now, eight of those 11 women are willing to move forward with a civil suit, suing the government. They've identified three members of the force that have been accused of sexually assaulting this women, in large part very similar to what happened in the Douglas Snellgrove case. Professional women, downtown, maybe intoxicated, which has nothing to do with it, but it makes them more vulnerable, possibly, and assaulted by, they say, some three members of the, uh, the RNC that they've identified. They're going through an assessment process at this point, and we'll see what becomes of it. But that's going, to, that's going to rock the world, rock the place, and rightfully so. If there is a culture of that type of behavior, and of course, I know many people who are members of the RNC, good, determined professionals, and the good, the quote-unquote good cop, wants to see the bad ones weeded out because that black cloud hangs over these dedicated professionals who are doing their level best day in and day out, but their careers, their reputation, the way people view them has been jeopardized because of those who act outside the law and outside societal accepted behaviors. Let's weed them out. And so we'll see if uh, Ms. Moore wants to make some time for us. That makes for a very tough transition to the fact that maybe I'll take a pause for coffee, give that a chance to breathe. It's Mother's Day on Sunday, so we won't have an opportunity to wish the mothers Happy Mother's Day live on the air. But to all the moms and those operating in the role as mom, and to my mom, and to my wife, and to my sisters who are mothers, happy Mother's Day to you. We hope you have an enjoyable, restful day and get catered to by those who love you. Okay, we're on Twitter. We're on VOCM Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Quick tune before we come back and speak with you. In 1972, squarely in the top ten, he was just here, Jackson Brown. He was on the bill with James Taylor, and uh, one of the boys here in the office who went to the concert said, Jackson Brown stole the show. He was terrific. He's in the top ten in 1972 with Dr. My Eyes. When we come back, let's talk. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on line number five. Good morning, Larry. You're on the air. How are you this morning? Doing well, Larry. How about you? Good. Uh, I heard you talking about the increase in costs in the fertilizer for the farmers. Right. Uh, well, I got a small lawn care company in town, and I buy a fair bit of fertilizer every year. And 
What I'm told is because of the war in Ukraine, there's a plant over there. I don't know if it's Russia or Ukraine, somewhere in there. I think it's Ukraine. I think it's potash. The plant is shut down, and this is why the cost is after going up actually by 50%. Well, I'm so sure that's part of it. Absolutely. Well, I send out renewals during the winter for people to prepay for the following year. You know, you got a bit of flow of money then to start you off. Mm-hmm. And that was, say, in December, January. And then I called probably a month ago to check in on the, on the product in town. They tell me, oops, it's gone up 50%. So I got to absorb the cost of people already prepaying. But that's what I'm being told. It's this company in town that I buy it off that uh, the war in Ukraine is with the, with the plant. And there was a couple of plants outside Ukraine that they're trying to get back open for this product for her to put in the fertilizer. So hopefully then the, the cost will go down eventually again. Well, you can only hope so. But, of course, we're all familiar with the fact that when prices go up quickly, they take a lot longer to come back down. So if you have a massive uh, distributor of potash or any other fertilizer, and it might be in Russia or Ukraine, and we all know what's going on there, the horrific scenes that people can take in day in and day out, then, of course, then the supply and demand kicks in, and what becomes a, a real battle for securing these products drives the price up. It's not necessarily fair, but that's exactly how it works every single time. So I don't know if it's going to require a resolution in the Ukrainian-Russian conflict for some of these prices to come back to earth and see the global supply chains put back into some form of normal delivery because they're in tatters right now. But I bet you absolutely right. It's going on. What's going on in Eastern Europe is a big contributor to these prices, no doubt. And then add in fuel, which is another part of the farming concern. Yes, and affects everybody's cost, not only me, everybody else. Yep. But... but uh, I'll, 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 I'll take the grunt of it now, but, uh, you know, if it, if hopefully the Ukraine war will be over soon. But that's what I'm being told. And, uh, and you know, I'd love for the company in town that sells, the uh, well-known company in town that sells these products, if one of them can down the line, just to explain a bit more, just to confirm what I'm saying. But that's what they told me, you know what I mean? Just to confirm that the reason, you know, it's not just because it went up because it went up, it's because of partly of the war and, of course, everything else, supply and demand, right? Of course, yeah. I mean, if there's a big supplier that's had their services interrupted, then inevitably we'll see what we see here with the potash and other fertilizers. I appreciate the time, Larry. Hope you have a successful season. Was that a goodbye? That sounds like it. <laughs> Bit of an interruption. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for Conception Bay East Bell Island. He's the opposition leader in the House of Assembly. That's David Brazel. Good morning, David. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and uh, thank you for this opportunity. No problem. Wanted to, uh, to get on and just bring people up to speed. The House of Assembly uh, is back in session after the uh, Easter break. And wanted to talk about some of the heavy things that we're debating here as we go through the budget process. You know, this week alone, we asked uh, 60 questions on the cost of living and health care. Because we're hearing from tens of thousands of Newfoundlanders and Labradorans, as you are on your show, about the impact that the cost of living, the increases particularly around fuels, are having on people and on food and all the other products that are related to the transportation costs. And we're still hearing a multitude of issues around health care and the impact it's having on people. So we've been 
wanting to make sure that the government realizes that these are the two crisis issues that are facing people in Newfoundland and Labrador. And if we're going to spend $8 billion, we've got to make sure that we spend it in a manner that best addresses not only all the issues facing Newfoundlanders and Labradorans, but these two particular ones right now have to be front and center. They have to be the key agenda items because without us addressing those, the impact on our society, the impact on people's health, physically and mentally, is going to be dramatic. And, and you know, we've gotten some inroads. We've asked for an you know, emergency debate on the economy and the uh, cost of living increases. Unfortunately, we didn't get that. We put in a private member's resolution where we got to debate it. Uh, uh, and we did get the Liberals to support it, unfortunately, because it's not binding. It doesn't mean they're going to change some of the things in the budget or they're going to make sure that they focus on a particular program that addresses the needs economically for the most vulnerable, for our senior citizens, okay. middle income, all these things that we've been sort of pushing in the House of Assembly today and, and this past week. And I know you've been following the House as we went through it. Uh, I do. Uh, and you mentioned the budget. Okay, so let's talk about health care because it's about $3.6 billion worth of the budget this this year. Sure. So if we're talking about money, sometimes I think we might be following a path that is not necessarily getting down to operational issues and even shortages. Because if it was a matter of money, healthcare would be excellent in this province because we throw a lot of money at it. And per capita, we're way out leading the league, yet we find ourselves not with the desired positive healthcare outcomes and with shortages and with extended wait times and all the other issues people refer to. So if we're talking money, where is healthcare money misspent? Well, we're talking about, I mean, we're already saying we're having to spend extra money to recruit doctors because doctors feel that they're, you know, they're overburdened, they're overworked, uh, they're not getting the time to spend on, you know, more serious interventions with their patients. So we've been calling for for years, and we've met with the Nurses Union, the Medical Association, the paramedics, the Pharmacists Association. The scope of work for our health professionals in Newfoundland and Labrador needs to be modified so that each one who has a specialty, and, and don't forget, they're all qualified, they've all been educated and trained, that if they can take on different roles in our healthcare system, it makes it more efficient, it makes it more timely for people to access it, and it then uh, opens up for those who have other specialty areas, like the doctors and nurses, that they can concentrate on those particular issues there. We're not making the headway that we should, so you're right, the amount of money we spend is probably sufficient. How we spend that money is a challenge. How we get the best return on the health professionals we have is one of the challenges we have here. And we've been challenging this administration and Minister Hagee for the last number of years to open up some of the legislation that gives nurse practitioners, for example, pharmacists, paramedics, uh, you know, uh, licensed practical nurses, and all the other health professionals an ability to take some of the pressure off doctors, which would then en enhance them to stay around or that the fact that they could then put more emphasis on particularly serious issues when it comes to assessment and interventions. And we're not getting the cooperation. We're getting it from all the agencies that we've met with, and we've met with a multitude of them on numerous occasions. And you know their frustration because they're out in the media every day and they echo the same things that we're hearing from them. So we're saying it's not the amount of money, it's how that money is being uh, used and how even some of the, the bureaucratic issues can be dealt with. Legislation, I've said it to the Premier, uh, my caucus have said it in the House of Assembly, if you want us to be collaborative, not a problem. You need to change a piece of legislation that enhances our ability to provide health care in an economical way and gets the better outcomes, we will come in and I guarantee you in a day we'll do this. This won't be posturing politically. This will be about the people of Newfoundland and Labrador. The toughest job in the province right now, I think, is uh, Dr. Megan Hayes, the new assistant uh, deputy minister in charge of professional recruitment, health care. You know, uh, 
again, I don't pretend to have the answers on this front. I think this is so complicated that it's anyone who says they have all the answers is, is just kidding themselves. There's a difference between recruiting to larger centers versus smaller rural isolated communities. And until we wrap our mind around tailor-made recruitment strategies for said smaller communities, we're just going to be kidding ourselves. Because if we think that the same thing to live and work in Cornerbrook or St. John's uh, is the same as being recruited to work in St. Albans or Burgio or Bay Vert or Harbor Breton, that's just, I think, nonsensical in my mind. So we've got to have a little change in tune as to how we approach these things. And I don't, I don't even think it's all money. You know, the doctors that I speak to, they're not necessarily talking about money. They're talking about the relationship with the regional health authority. They're talking about opportunities for training. They're talking about amenities and support staff and just how overwor- overwhelmed and overworked they are. So I think we've got to get down to very specific tailor-made recruitment strategies because other than that, we are going to be forever a day talking about the absence of a doctor in one community or another. You're exactly right, and that's why we've been sort of pushing the fact that a holistic approach. If you're bringing in a physician, well, we need to look at the needs of their family also in that community. We need to look at the issues around what other health professionals there can offset some of the pressures on that doctor. Uh, you know, I'll tell you right now, when I finish this call, I'm going to make a call to Eastern Health because I'm in the midst now of, of trying to find a way to support a potential doctor we have for Belle Island in my district who wants to come to Belle Island, wants to stay there, but because of some of the uh, negotiated issues around with the Eastern Health situation and all that, he may not uh, come to Belle Island and stay as a physician. So we need to be a little bit more open. And you're right, things like uh, having extra supports within the communities, uh, that individual them in any rural or remote area, being able to uh, rely on their other health professionals then to support what they're doing. It's a collaborative approach here, and it's a team approach. And we talk about that from a healthcare perspective, but as one to talk about it, you actually got to put it into practice, particularly in rural and remote areas. So we've been pushing that heavily for the people of this province, and we've been pushing Hagee on it, and you know my view, and I'm saying, you know, John Hagee, probably a great MEJ, would be a great minister somewhere else, but in my opinion, uh, he's ran his course now after seven years, and I've heard that from a multitude of the health professionals and the general public. Time we get some fresh perspectives perspectives there, and we're, again, open to work with the administration to solve the issues in this problem, cost of living, health care, and I won't get into some of the other challenges we had this week around the Rothschild uh, report and these type of things, but this is about dealing with the two immediate crises, and it's the cost of living and it's health care in this province. They have to be the key agenda items right now in this budget and for this administration, and we'll do our part to make sure that the outcomes are in the benefit uh, for the people of this province. Appreciate the time, David. Have a nice weekend. Thank you, Patty. And to every mother, happy Mother's Day. Right on. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Steve Brazel. He's the PC member for Conception Bay East Bell Island and the opposition house leader. Let's go ahead and take a break. This is an interesting story. I think this has popped up on my, on my social media feed. Lisa's there. She lost her daycare services. The provider has decided to take only younger kids, and so she's lost her space. We'll see what Lisa has to say right after this. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Lisa. You're on the air. Good morning. I'm calling regarding, um, I live in GBS, and we have two small kids. They're six and eight. Our daycare is a registered and regulated daycare, uh, so they work off all government grants. And my children have been there for three years. We were told this week, we received a letter that said that they were changing their program and only offering after school to some of their children. So... After finding out that it went by age, again, I have a son who's eight and a daughter who's six. We no longer have spaces along with many other children, many other families, I should say. Um, And I know it's also happened at the Paradise location. 
so we, I had asked what the age group was. I found out that children that were actually older than my daughter um, still had spaces. So I, I obviously contacted the owner after speaking with her. They found a space for me. Again, my daughter was obviously discriminated against, but that's not the issue. The issue is right now many centers are actually canceling the after-school program or phasing out the after-school programs with little to no notice. We were given two months, um, but of course with childcare wait lists being up to two years, many families are looking at either if they find childcare, their childcare will actually be more than doubled. Um, I mean, obviously, there's there's an issue there with the policies and procedures, either with these facilities or what government is allowing them to do. They're considered private businesses, but government gives them millions of dollars every year. Yeah, of course, some of those subsidies are in an effort to control costs for you and everybody else who needs uh, daycare or childcare. It's curious when we make the age distinction because from the outside looking in, I've never worked at a daycare, it would be much easier to offer services for older children i mean the most complicated would be the youngers the the two-year-olds and stuff you know talk about a handful and then all the way to six and eight who can kind of uh, appease themselves and occupy their own time and they don't really require the same sort of hands-on attention that the smaller uh, toddlers would need so that's sort of strange in and of itself is it also possibly regarding the numbers of staff where they're having to phase out some of their after school uh, programs i don't think so i mean the month of january our daycare uh, with the schools being virtual, our daycare actually had us pay for childcare, but we never had any childcare. Um, they were open from two to five thirty, which I'm not sure about you, but my workday doesn't start at two thirty in the afternoon. Um, so we obviously still had to pay. We had contacted our MHAs and things like that, and they said, "Well, you know, it's a private business." And I'm like, "Well, they're not offering the services." I know they've had major issues with trying to get staff, um, just like every every business, obviously. And I mean, the staff that work there are phenomenal. My kids have been there for three years. Um, so I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is that the four-year-olds, they obviously, if they are there for full days, whereas the after-school programs, they're not. They're there for a couple of hours in the morning, an hour in the afternoon. They get $20 a day. With the four-year-olds, according to the government website, they get $40 a day because they're there all day. Yeah. Well, now, if it was my business, that's much better for me, is to have a consistent full day and what comes with that, with the amount of money that the parents or the caregivers would have to spend for the service. Uh, I mean, I'm not it exactly is, sure what my, to say to this. My biggest thing is that if, you know, companies or businesses that work off government grants are going to say to parents, you know, be lucky we gave you two months. I could have gave you a week because that's what I was told yesterday. Um, then... Obviously, something's got to give regards to the government because if they've created this problem, then what happens to the parents? Because I know parents right now who work at the Daneway, parents who work uh, as nurses, and we've got people who are essential workers. We've got people on subsidies that no longer have childcare. What's their option? I know me as a family, I'm going to see an increase of $700 a month in my childcare for my two kids who go to school full time. So if I see that, what does a single parent see? Right. Um, the issue of paying for a service that you're not getting. So in the summer months, for instance, when our boys, although I was a stay-at-home dad for years, but in the summer when we would have them in daycares, they got a little bit closer to going to school for the social interactions more than anything else. 
Paying for their space during the summer was exceedingly frustrating. You know, and the argument is that uh, even though there's a reduced number of children needing the services possibly during whether it be holidays or throughout the summer, that the expenses don't dry up at the daycare. So they need to keep charging to hold your space. I kind of get the argument, but boy, I used to get awful frustrated writing that check. And I mean, I have no problems. I have paid for my spaces when my kids don't attend. Fine. That's not the issue. The issue is right now we've got so many people scrambling right now with no childcare. I signed up for summer camps and within minutes it was uh, my EMT was you know cancelled and we were put on a wait list so and that's someone who can actually again I can't afford it but I have kids I don't expect tax dollars to pay for my children but someone who's on a subsidy or and that's if we can even get an after school program what happens do, do we quit our jobs you want to talk about the cost of living they talked about it yesterday in the House of Assembly mm-hmm. You know, right now I'm going to pay more than double for childcare um, because, you know, a lot of facilities now are cutting out their after school programs. What happens to those families? Excellent question. Now, you say you don't want uh, government tax dollars to have to pay for your child care. Don't you, don't you think it's really a very helpful and positive step for the country to be moving towards $10 a day with government support? Yeah, it, it totally is, Eddie. I will totally agree with you. But I have paid the $50 a day for childcare. But what you're seeing now is you're seeing facilities don't want to deal with the after-school programs. Why, why would they deal with the after-school programs? Because they can hire one or two extra staff. They can get the full 40 or $50 a day for funding. So what happens to these children who go to school? My workday doesn't end at 2.30 when my kids get out of school. Understood. Point taken. Right? That's, that's the issue. I mean, and obviously I've been in contact with our MHAs, um, and I know Paradise is dealing with the same issue because I've, I've seen the MHA of Paradise uh, discuss it yesterday in the House Assembly. But obviously something has to be either set in. Either, you know, private businesses need to step up and not, you know, government needs to say, well, you know, these people have held these spaces. You can't decide that you don't want to deal with them anymore because that's what's happening. Um, or start funding after-school programs in the schools because if – you know, they're paying for it in the regulated childcare facilities, then the after-school programs, obviously something's got to get, because $50 a day for two small kids, if you can find a space, is quite expensive for two hours. Sure it is. Uh, Lisa, I appreciate and making time. Find space. Perfect. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, Remarkably, $10 a day for childcare, daycare, early childhood education is still frowned upon by many Canadians. There's a big economic upside to it. And I don't have small children. I don't need the daycare support. But I think it's a good play anyway. I think if you look at some of the academic research and or the actual real data regarding economic activity, GDP, uh, especially in the province of Quebec, who have been on the right track for so many years there, it's quite clear. It's to all of our best interests to have accessible, affordable child care. So to Lisa's point, if the government's going to be more and more involved with more and more government taxpayer dollars, then absolutely to secure, whether it be after-school programs and to treat the regulated and unregulated daycares the same and a keen focus on early childhood educators. The way they're paid, the way they're trained, because right now we're asking people to do an extremely difficult and important job on our behalf as they look after and to educate our young minds. We don't pay them enough. We just don't. So inside of that path to $10 a day for early childhood education or daycare, that has to be a key focus. It's got to be accessible. It's one thing to just have it, but if we have one community has a couple of larger centers or in-home daycares, but they don't have access for their child, it becomes a problem. 
you know, it's a problem that exists, and it's a problem that we have to do away with. So all these contractual obligations between the providers and the governments have to be pretty firm. You cannot erode said service because it makes your life easier. Now, look, for daycare operators, they've had a tough COVID. No doubt about it. And if whether it be Gail Sullivan or anybody else would like to chime in on what she heard from Lisa or anyone else running a daycare, whether it be smaller or some of the larger centers, we're happy to have you on the show. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Just before we go to the phones, the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure has closed the fast lane, the left lane, of the Trans-Canada Highway westbound at the Fox Trap Way Scales in order to do some repairs. The repairs are expected to take a few hours, so... There's your heads up. Uh, the TCH westbound at the Foxtrap Way Scales, the left lane, the fast lane, has been closed for repairs. Let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Gwen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. How about you? Oh, I'm doing good. I want to uh, present something to you that's uh, really important for your listeners as well as yourself. And I want to describe uh, what's going on uh, with... Uh, well, Lynn Moore is doing a very good job here. I um, want to talk about the eight women, including the female RNC officer, who are suing the province for failure to protect against assault by RNC predators, which is her words. I um, want to talk about the culture of the behavior of the RNC police which way, went way back to 1964 that I'm aware of. Shockingly, this behavior has not improved over these 58 years, often leaving the morale of the remaining officers of the force very low, the atmosphere very challenging. Much of this behavior uh, was exposed in the evidence brought forward within the Hughes Inquiry in 1989 where the beginning of this police behavior culture was ignored by Chief Pittman. Each chief up through the years has been faced with this behavior, but was instructed to protect the image of the force instead of ridding the force of this malicious dysfunctional behavior of the many police who were predators to the public. Uh, just so I'm on the same page, Gwen, yep. the Hughes inquiry, wasn't that about Mountcastle? Uh, yes, but it expanded. Okay, because uh, I don't remember clearly, the, the, so that's why I'm asking. Yeah, it, it expanded into four sections eventually because it was getting um, into... Well, it just was widespread, and they had to get uh, people who wanted to tell their stories, and so they divided up into four sections. Okay. I, I just wanted to be clear so that I, I knew exactly where we're going. But you go right ahead, Gwen. I'm, I apologize. Okay. No, not a problem. Uh, some chiefs were held hostage by these police, forcing them into early retirement, which made them look very bad and was certainly not justified. The toxic atmosphere in the homes of these police was and is tense, encasing to the mind, um, depressing and terrifying to the children. And sadly, I, I know of two children who lost their lives to suicide, their fathers being so cruel to them. This is unforgivably terrible. This is now 2022. This behavior has gotten worse, a colossal mess in the court, victims being further abused and treated like they are the criminal, 
the Doug Snellgrove case is one point out of many. Um, this behavior must now be not only acknowledged but acted upon immediately to eliminate these officers from the force and to confine them behind bars. That sounds kind of uh, horrible, but it's, this is a hate crime we're dealing with. This behavior is not fixable. The sooner this is acknowledged by the rule of law, by the justice system, which I think uh, Lynn mentioned yesterday on uh, NTV, and acted upon. This justice system has to act upon it, not just acknowledge it, but to act upon it. To not wait for that police person to retire, which is what they're doing right now, but to be incarcerated permanently. Well, one of the members that's been identified apparently retired very shortly after some of these stories came to light. I suppose it's a one step or one foot in front of the other, isn't it? Because if they're going to proceed with a civil matter, it's probably even best for the potential for criminal justice to wait to hear and see what's revealed during that particular proceeding, because that might be very helpful in an investigation that may or may not lead to any criminal charges. What do you think of that? Well, uh, it's dangerous, number one. How so? Uh, well, put it this way. It, it's sort of like um, you're darned if you do and darned if you don't. Uh, I agree with what you just said, but it's a slow process. And the behavior has no conscience, no remorse, no more morality. So these people who have retired, these police, uh, now what do we do with them? I mean, within the police force, it's a, a protocol of behavior that they can be uh, not fired, but um, they have to be uh, watched, I suppose, for the lack of a better word. Whereas when, once they retire, they're out in the public. No one's watching over them until something bad happens. So trying to get this behavior fixed or repaired doesn't happen. It's not in their behavior to understand what that is. I would also think that the the victims can only absorb and handle so much. Can you imagine if there was a massive overlap between civil and criminal proceedings, even though I'm not even really sure that can happen? You know, they're reliving this now during this assessment process. Then they'll relive it again during the litigation. Then they'll relive it again if there ever becomes a criminal proceeding. So we're also asking an awful lot of women who are really traumatized because of what happened. So I, I think there's probably some consideration given to that as well to try to... I guess you have to take each case separately. I would think so. What the person themselves can endure. I know uh, when Lynn came out with this uh, the other day that she was bringing these women, she had eight, but uh, I think there was 11 originally, but they couldn't do it. And that's the sad part of this. Look, I've, I've been, um, you know my history anyway mm-hmm. with, with my situation. Whenever Lynn or anybody else brings up these types of things, the first thing I want to do is pick up the phone and ask them to just uh, talk to me for a few minutes so that I don't uh, go back into flashbacks. You, you never get over it. It disappears more and more often and stays gone for a longer time each time. 
but when it happens, it makes up for lost time. So this is why prevention and making the public aware that these behaviors are what they are and you cannot fix it. Thank God there's not too many of them out there, but still, um, this behavior keeps repeating the attacks on women. Sure, and I think the difference between the civil and criminal, er, there's many differences, obviously, but some of this would be as much about the specific cases as it would be about the culture and how it was allowed to happen. Versus in the criminal proceeding, it would be about the act, you know? Yeah. So I think there's that difference think, that we I have to... I think you're right there. You have to tread very gingerly per case. But uh, in the courts, and I've meant, we've talked about this before as well, the courts have to have a different venue than what they have. When a victim goes in, automatically the courts assume that they're the ones that caused all this instead of the other way around in that the person who's on trial, uh, the lawyer's trying to get them off regardless of it's right or wrong. Some of the way that even judges have behaved uh, yes, exactly. has not they all been... have to be trained. Sorry for interrupting. That's okay. I, I do have to get to the news, but I'll give you the last word, Gwen. Okay. I just want a few things to be highlighted here, and then I'm done. Um, recruitment for the new candidates, this is bothering me a lot, and it's bothering a lot of people. Uh, the candidates to join the RNC is now underway. It's, it's critical to screen the behavior of each person applying, behavioral psychologists and those of people who understand these behaviors have to dig very deeply before they're recruited into the force because these are the people who are causing all the problems, the, the police that have this behavior. And medical screening is in-depth, mm. must be done to identify the behavioral dysfunctional maliciousness of the, each person of, of this behavior. And we have to be able to identify and eliminate the charming sociopath and the dangerous psychopath, the vicious sexual predators and pedophiles, the hate-filled. It's all hate-filled and uncontrollable personalities. And if this is not fixed pretty soon, um, a lot of people don't trust the RNC anymore. And some of that I will also add because I really do have to go. I think yeah. some of the way we view law enforcement, even in the country, some of it is based on what we see and hear and feel where we live. Mm -hmm. Some of it's also based with what seeps into our minds when we even look around the world at the behavior of law enforcement. You know, say, for instance, in the United States. All of a sudden, all of these things culminate in our minds, and collectively we form this catch-all view of law enforcement when I think you mentioned case by case. It's probably much more helpful when yeah, we, we dig into what we're actually experiencing here in this province. But, uh, Gwen, I appreciate your time as usual. I hope you have a nice weekend. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for taking me on here. My, my pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I just going to take a break for the news. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Join us on line number one is one of the candidates vying to be the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. He's currently the mayor of Brampton, Ontario. That's Patrick Brown. Good morning, Mr. Brown. You're on the air. Great to be on your show this morning. Happy to have you on, sir. Uh, right off the bat, last I kicked off the debate portion of the quest for the leadership. You weren't in attendance. Why not? 
So I'm attending all the parties' official debates, uh, but not the third-party ones. There's a, a ton of other debates that the different organizations are hosting. And uh, for me right now, it's more important, important to, to get around the, pro- uh, the country and sell memberships. And that's what I'm doing today in, in Newfoundland and what I was doing yesterday in Nova Scotia. Uh, right now, the party is small. Uh, it is a very small membership, very small infrastructure. And we only have till June 3rd to invite people into the party to participate in this vote and that's what I'm focused on until June 3rd. There seems to be now, there's long been societal issues at front and centre in political campaigns, whether it be inside one party or on the national stage. It now seems to me, and I'll get your thoughts on it, we've gone from societal issue debates to all-out cultural warfare. Your thoughts? Yeah, I found the debate last night very, um, uh, the tone very nasty and negative. I, I don't think that that's healthy. Um, you know, I think it's important the party has a debate over ideas and the direction that we want it to go, but the personal attacks uh, seem more like a student council election than it did um, you know, candidates vying uh, to, to lead a, a party that aspires to form the government of Canada. There's another issue, and of course, look, I know this is Canada, not the United States, but we do indeed see political discourse sometimes led by the rhetoric that we hear from the south of the border. One such issue now, of course, is the leaked legal opinion from the Supreme Court regarding Roe versus Wade and abortion discussions. In this country... We can't avoid the conversation, and I'm not so foolish to think that we're Americans and everything they do, we must do. But even in your news release on this front, one of the sentences, if I remember correctly, is that you will try to make every effort to make abortions rare. How and why? Well, what I said is I support a woman's right to choose, I, that abortion should be safe uh, and legal um, and, and, of course, rare. It's, you know, you, you want to offer um, all the support possible for uh, women making that difficult uh, decision, but you know, I've been very clear that this is uh, um, if I lead the Conservative Party and lead a future government of Canada, this is not uh, an issue we're going to be revisiting. Uh, I believe we need to focus on the economy, g- getting Canada back on its feet, and I don't want to revisit divisive uh, social debates that the country's moved on from 40 years ago. The, the ruling in 1988, the R versus Morgan Toller, is what we go by. But would a Conservative-led party and government led by you extend the conversation to actually codify it into law? Because there's a big difference between it, it's not illegal versus it's enshrined in, say, for instance, the charter legislation that puts it to bed once and for all. Because then we can stop talking about it. Would you support that? So um, I know there's been some talk about opening the charter. Obviously, whenever you get into constitutional conversations in Canada, um, it it gets very difficult, and and obviously it requires um, uh, provincial consent, and uh, a whole host of other issues get brought up during constitutional negotiations. What I would say is that... uh, um, Although I'm not uh, looking to reopen the Constitution, uh, I would, as a government, make sure that it continues to be safe and legal, legal and uh, we will protect uh, a woman's right to choose. Moving on to religious freedoms, I know you've been a vocal opponent to the secular laws in Quebec, but outside of that, the borders of that particular province, where do you see any lack or respect for religious freedoms? Well, certainly if the law in Quebec is passed, it sets a precedent that could exist elsewhere in Canada. And for those uh, listening today who may not realize, uh, there is a law in Quebec that says if you wear a turban or a hijab or a cross or a kippah, you can't have any government job. You couldn't be a firefighter or a teacher or a police officer. And we have individuals losing their jobs in Quebec and moving to other provinces. And this is going to go to the Supreme Court, and so it's a dangerous 
precedent in the country that unfortunately um, Ottawa has been sitting on the sidelines for. But I do see other diminishments of, of um, opportunities, the way I, I'd say it. You know, for me, the Canadian dream is that no matter where you come from, no matter the colour of your skin or what God you worship, everyone, if they work hard and have talent, can succeed in Canada. And there are barriers. You know, I look at the challenges we have with foreign credential recognition, where there are individuals who um, have the capacity to practice medicine in our hospitals that are not, are not allowed to, nurses who want to help that are not allowed to, engineers who want to work that are not allowed to. So I think we need to create a better system to make sure that those in Canada that want to use their God-given talents have the ability to do so. The affordability issue, whether it be cost of living and the the want for some people to make a distinct overlap between inflation and cost of living, when indeed they are two different things with uh, different kind of pressure points that are brought to bear. You talk about affordability. So whether it be, you know, Mr. Poliev, one of your opponents talking that the Bank of Canada is financially illiterate, which I'm not 100% sure what that means, but affordability issues are really hot button and they're politically important, but there's not much in the way of detail on how one party or another or one politician or another is going to make life more affordable in this country. Give us a couple of examples where you think affordability can be achieved because for me, it's as wide as it is broad and it's more complicated than people give it credit for. Well, you know, I, I certainly uh, agree with your assessment that you can't uh, over, oversimplify some of these solutions. And you know, when Pierre Polyev is out there saying he's going to use cryptocurrency to cancel inflation, um, I don't think he knows what he's talking about. Uh, the reality is there are inflationary pressures around the world that are not unique to, to Canada. It, it does contribute to an affordability uh, crisis. Uh, that The fact that uh, um, in Ottawa right now, we have a financial mess where we're spending well beyond our means um, and we're printing money like there's no tomorrow uh, doesn't doesn't help but that doesn't change the fact that there is an international inflationary pressure that is uh, happening um, in all industrialized countries what I would say one thing that would help consumers is more competition I'm a big believer um, in the marketplace uh, being one of the best protections for consumers. And let's look at the housing market right now. The housing market is much talked about, uh, um, seeing significant increases across the country, and including uh, Atlantic Canada. And it, it is difficult now to get new product on the marketplace. It is tougher than ever before to get labor. You know, for, for, for people to build homes, it's more difficult to get product to, to, to build homes. And approvals with, with government take too long. 30 years ago, it might have taken um, three months to get approvals for a subdivision. And now, in some parts of the country, it takes five to seven years. We need more product. We need more supply. We need more competition. And the analogy I give is that if someone's going to a convenience store to buy an apple and there's only one apple and 10 people wanting to buy that apple, it's going to cause cost escalations. But if you had uh, a ton of apples and you had um, consumers wanting to go buy those apples, it would create a competitive marketplace for the purchase of those apples. We don't have that in many sectors in Canada right now. So competition is something that I would encourage. I wish you had more time, Mr. Brown, but I appreciate your time. Welcome to the province and good luck. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown, one of the six vying for the CPC leadership. Let's take a break. When we come back, revisit a conversation that we began yesterday with Tina Davies about the work she's doing with her team going into the province of schools to talk about mental health. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, just before we get to Tina, let's go to line four. Barry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. Happy to do it. Patty, uh, this morning I'd like to talk about the uh, Atlantic salmon and more specifically the, uh, the survival and uh, future of the Atlantic salmon. Um, I spoke to you before about the uh, fishery guardians and uh, we're, we're trying to 
lobby and make an effort to the government, as we have in the past, to get them to hire more get more people as the uh, River Guardians and uh, keep them hired on for longer. Um, we have three types of enforcement here in the province, one from DFO, one from Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, and both those agencies have extra responsibilities and duties, so, you know, they're busy and God love them for what they do. The group we're talking about, though, are fishery guardians, and they are employed by a private company called Sea-Watch, which is contracted through DFO. Um, myself and Paul White uh, started up, initiated a meeting with Ken McDonald there in 2019, going around for three years, if not longer, and uh, tried to made a presentation to him about the why we think the guardian need more guardians, why they should be kept on longer. Uh, then the pandemic hit, and then we uh, had a uh, Zoom meeting, myself and Lucas Roberts, with five of the Liberal MPs. And from that, they drafted a letter and sent to Minister Jordan, and the answer we got back, then Minister Jordan, uh, the answer we got back was that uh, she or her office or department felt that there was enough uh, uh, enforcing here in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. Barry, before we go uh, too far, because you know the issue, but many people listening probably sure, don't. Yes, thank you, Patty. So for the River Guardians, what sort of authority is afforded to them versus what might be a wildlife officer working for the province? Now, that's a good question, Patty, and I, I can't answer that with, uh, with, with, uh, because I don't exactly know the difference. Okay, and the next one I would ask, because we talked about this last year, or maybe the year before, whenever it was, it's one thing for the numbers of people that are monitoring the rivers, because we know that people are willing to be a poacher. They know the schedules, they know where they are, they know how many are out there, and they take their opportunity. What always struck me as odd is not only the lack of resources, but how early they withdraw their services from the river. Yes, and uh, actually, after after uh, the and the guardians, the guardians are hired on for the most part from June first to the Labor Day, uh, say September seventh when salmon season closed. A week later in, in uh, Labrador, uh, just last year, after a meeting with uh, Ken McDonald, uh, there was a at the end of the season last year, uh, there was a charge laid against individual or individuals. Uh, for netting, to say, netting the river, and they got confiscated net and the fish. And I sent that to Ken McDonald, and I said, here, this is what we are talking about, right here. Now, uh, Patty, we want to see them more people hired on, because we do need more people, because there's not enough of them to go around, because they're doing a great job, but there's just not enough of them to cover the vast geographical regions that we have. And we'd also like to see the uh, employment uh, season duration extended. For example, where they start in June to September, in May month is when the salmon are coming down along the coastlines, and poachers are having a field day along the coastlines with nets. And then at the uh, at the uh, in the fall, then the salmon are upriver, congregating big numbers in shallow water, getting ready to spawn. And because nobody in looking after them, then they're being netted. That could mean generations of fish in one swoop of the net. Uh, I hate asking questions that are straight-up hypotheticals, but for someone who's been involved in wildlife, whether it be conservation, protection, and other safety tips and things you bring forward, just how common or prevalent is poaching, in your opinion? When we talk about rivers, we'll leave alone big game and stuff, but on the rivers. I mean, we've seen some people arrested and charged. Sometimes the charges and the consequential fines and punishment are pretty minimal. Everyone thinks that every time you get caught poaching, you lose your truck, your rod, your reel, your basket, and everything associated with your quad, but that doesn't necessarily come to pass every time. So how prevalent do we think poaching is on the rivers? 
Uh, well, Patty, I think it's more prevalent than what people think, and uh, you're, you're right, defiance and everything else, and that's something that we've been lobbying for a number of years, Patty, five years or more with the uh, provincial government, that is to uh, combat poaching. The fines need to be stiffer. The loss of privileges need to be extended more longer time. Uh, and we, and uh, those other things, but we, the outdoor people, we have to start speaking up and reporting it because if we don't report it, poachers now have free reign and they and because we're not reporting it they think they can get away with it and it's okay yeah and there's not a one-size-fits-all either there was a story not long ago out on the west coast where two guys involved in the exact same poaching incident had two different levels of punishment i mean when you see that stuff you know that there's something badly broken i would imagine it's probably wise if we had you get caught once and depending on the you know the severity of it caught once is really quite punishing caught twice you're never allowed near the river again you know i don't know why we would even accommodate anybody who knows willfully knows the breaking the law everybody knows you're not allowed to put a net across the river you catch someone doing that once why we catch you within eight feet of any river ever again and then we start talking about prison time because i just don't know why we even allow people to pretend that a little minimal fine and a banishment of a couple of years from a river is good enough if you're someone out there just sneaking through the shadows with a, with a net to go across the salmon river or what have you but anyway i'll give you the last word barry go ahead patty patty in that in that case that you just mentioned about on the west coast that left a bad taste in people's mouth and and gave uh i guess would-be poachers or poachers that uh, you know uh, an extra spurt Yes, well, if we can do that, there's nothing going to happen to us. And the complacency of the outdoor people, and like with, with the price, cost of living, and everything else, not these days, people saying, oh, I'm going to go and get a moose, I'm going to go out and get a salmon. Excuse me. That's poaching. But just let's think, back up for a second. In order, to, You're not going to get, do that in your backyard. So in order to go, get out somewhere where, the, where that's to, you got to have a vehicle and gas. How are you going to get it? you got to have firearm and ammunition. So where did you get all that from? And you're telling me that you don't have any money to, to – and I'm not being insensitive, Patty. I'm not being insensitive at all, but it is breaking the law. And the complacency of it is unbelievable, unfathomable. And so to clue up, uh, right now it's too late to hire on more guardians. But we would like to see, though, uh, the, the season duration be extended into uh, October into October so they better look after the, the salmon that are up in the rivers already. Fair ball. I appreciate the time this morning, Barry. Thanks for the call. Paddy, thank you very much. It's always been a pleasure. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, yeah, that's an interesting topic. Uh, we appreciate Tina's patience. We're going to take a break now so we can come back and have a nice conversation with Tina about the work she's doing in the province of schools. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Good morning, Tina Davies. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How lucky am I to get to talk to you two days in a row? I'm the lucky one here. I'm not entirely sure where we left off, so let's just go right back to the classroom and the things that you're doing in the schools. Sure. Uh, I was just mentioning the fact that um, we'd like to get into the schools more. We just did a Safe Talk workshop at the Avondale High School, um, Roncalli High, on Tuesday, and the feedback was very, very positive. Uh, got a message from the school guidance counselor, and she said it had just been. It was, it was fabulous, and 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 this is good because because the kids once they once they get once anyone gets taught these 
kinds of things and they will speak about it and they'll use it and then others will speak about it and that way we get more people talking about suicide and the more people talk about suicide the easier it is for people who are having those thoughts of suicide to reach out for help. Is there any difference with the way you and I would talk about the issue versus how you approach uh, talking with high school students? Well, a little, a little. Uh, I wouldn't. There wouldn't be any changes in the actual uh, workshop, that's for sure. But the conversations that come out of it um, would be a little different. However, I, I don't hold back when I when I speak in a workshop uh, when I'm teaching. It's I let them know my lived experience, and that kind of brings it home. Um, they listen. They listen when 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 they find that out, you know, and and that's good. That's all I want them to do. I want them to listen. Sure, and your life circumstance, and you and I have talked about it before. Uh, your yeah. son died by suicide, and so for you to take that tragedy and turn it into an opportunity to help others, to support others, and or to speak to these high school students, I think is quite admirable, and I think you're awesome. Uh, give me an idea of some of the questions that people might ask you, especially in the high school setting. Well, they talk about um, how hard it is to um, to ask somebody, and how they would feel uh, stupid if they ask somebody and that person wasn't thinking about suicide. And I think I touched on this yesterday. Where, uh, and then I explained to them. So okay, so you ask someone. Are you, you know, geez, it looks like you're having a hard time. You you've been missing classes. You've been late you've been doing this and that sometimes you know when when people do those kinds of things sometimes they're thinking about suicide and are you thinking about suicide and and that person says no and you believe them um then that person that you just asked they're not upset that you ask them as a matter of fact they realize that if they ever do have a problem they can come to you and talk to you because you are you speak openly about suicide it's so important, and I think one of the points you made on that front yesterday was, so let's say I ask my friend, and they say, no, no, I'm not at all. Why do you ask? And you'll have your conversation, but then that person knows that you care enough, and they know that you might be someone they can talk to if and when they go down a particularly dark road. So I think that's a really important uh, ripple effect of being honest with your friends and asking pointed questions, and we're not suggesting that everybody at every turn when someone's having a an off day or there's problem at home or they failed the test it doesn't the conversation doesn't have to start every single time with are you thinking about killing yourself you know or are you thinking about dying by suicide but you know when you see that the, there's a pattern developing be caring enough to not be afraid to talk because if you know for one person to ask the other not only will they lean on that person in days to come or weeks or months to come but then all of a sudden they think you know what I've got a friend in my neighborhood who doesn't go to this school, but it's time for us to have an honest conversation. So that ripple effect and the multiplier effect can indeed lead to more honest, open, realistic conversations, not to always just bring up nothing but the darkest of times, but to ensure that we avoid some of these dark times as much as possible by being there for each other. Absolutely. And, uh, and another thing, especially uh, when it comes to the younger people, they will, if somebody, say your best friend, you're in, you're in, I don't know, high school. Your best friend tells you that that you're um, 
that they're thinking about they're, they're going to take their life and but they make you promise they want you to promise not to tell anybody uh, and you and you do that you don't you don't tell anybody well I had a f- young fellow come to the support group meeting where this in fact actually did happen and he was his, his best friend and he, they would text back and forth not uh, you know he would be trying to talk him out of it and that kind of thing and then one morning uh, his friend texted him and said well today's the day so he texted back but he wasn't getting any answer so he ran to his mom and he and he told her what was going on and his mom got in touch with his best friend's parents but by that time it was too late so now comes time for the funeral and he goes to attend the funeral of his best friend and there's two big burly uncles standing at the church door and they won't let him in because he knew and it, this is in in the emotion of grief Oh this is his fault. So, oh my, it's it, you know this, and this kid has to carry that the rest, yeah. the rest of his life. So I speak to these kids. Listen, tell somebody. Don't make promises you can't keep. Because I would much rather have. So if your friend gets mad at you for telling, you know what? I would much rather have a mad friend than a dead friend, because you can't do anything about it once they're dead. But you know what? When they're mad, after a while, they think about it, and they'll come and they'll thank you. you know? Boy, oh boy! Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like that, right? Yeah. So they they need to know. They need to know. They need to know these things. Don't don't keep secrets. Talk about it. Ask. You know, we're we're, <laughs> and it's hard. And if you ask and they say no, but you don't believe them. Because you have to use your intuition, right? And that's your, that gut feeling that you feel, right? And if you think it's like, mm, no, nah, I, I just, I don't believe him I, or her. Uh, it's So you ask again. Mm-hmm. And if they still say no, and if you still don't believe them, say, look, you know what? I'm, I'm not sure about this. Um, I'm having a hard time. I think I need, I think we need some extra help. So let can we go talk to so-and-so they, they've been trained in assistant or can we go talk to go to emergency and you can talk to somebody I'll go with you you know just that kind of thing don't leave it and then don't leave them alone yeah whatever it takes uh, Tina before we uh, run out of time and say goodbye how are yeah. you oh I'm great <laughs> I'm 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 great it's funny you ask that because not many people do, you know. And I, I was with a client one time at the Waterford, and uh, we had a whole big session there for hours. And then the the intern there, uh, the doctor, he he spoke to our to the, my client, and because we stayed together, she didn't want to be alone. And he finished. Uh, we finished dealing with her issue, and he turned to me and he said, "And Tina." How are you? <laughs> I almost fell off my chair because that that doesn't happen a lot. But really, Patty, I I am fine. I I I love what I do. Okay, I love what I do. I lo- I like me. I like the person who I am today. But I'll tell you one thing: I would trade it in a New York minute to have my son back. But that's option A, and it's not available. So option B, it is. And I just do what I can to help people so that they don't make that that permanent solution to a temporary problem. 
Well, we're lucky that you are happy with who you are and what you're doing. And thank you very much for your time this morning. Keep it up, Tina, and I'll see you soon. Thanks, Patty, and um, happy Mental Health Week. Same to you. Yeah, Take thanks. care, Tina, already. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Uh, let's go. Line number five. Good morning, Ian Richardson. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you? Great, sir. You? Oh, not too bad. Good man. So I talked a little bit off the top about agriculture and the increase in costs of fuel, fuel and feed and fertilizer. You're in the business. What do you do, Ian? Uh, we have a dairy farm here on the west coast of Newfoundland, and we milk 200 cows and farm about 1,500 acres, and we have about 500 cows in total here on the farm. So what has the recent uh, spike in all three aforementioned issues meant for your operation? <laughs> it's meant uh, for a lot of sleepless nights and uh, I guess a lot of stress here trying to figure out how... Uh, how we're going to make it through the next year, year and a half, and uh, and looking at the long-term, I guess, uh, success of the operation, how we're going to navigate through the next few years, and uh, and where I guess where the markets are going and how things are going to play out for everybody. I guess uh, one thing that I, as I've talked to a few people about what's going on in our industry, I guess I always just try to give a bit of a comparison. So. We have a family of six here, and we know how much it's gone up to feed the six people in our house. Uh, you can imagine we have the six people in our house, plus we have 500, 2,000-pound animals that are looking to get uh, get fed every single day, and the cost of feeding them has gone up as much as what has gone up for every single person, and then pretty much five times that because the animals are five to ten times as big as what a normal person would be. So. And we're not talking about an operation the size of yours that has big, healthy margins that can absorb these increases. Well, the the way that the milk price works in Canada, it's it's federally regulated by uh, the Canadian Dairy Commission. And the way that it's been for years and years and years is the milk price is only allowed to be adjusted once a year. So in February, they gave us uh, um, an increase in the price of our milk for the first time, I guess, in a year, year and a half, we had seen anything. And uh, the cost, that was based on last October's cost. And as you know, since uh, the war in the Ukraine and uh, the impact of the price of fuel and everything, our price have just continued to skyrocket on a daily basis ever since... uh, since the war started and you know if we sit here and don't look at another price increase on the price of milk and uh until february of next year there's going to be an awful lot of farms in uh, in this country that are in an awful uh, awful state by the time next february comes around if no government support comes your way what happens to the farm this fall well the the part that i don't think people realize is the the perfect eye of the storm hasn't even hit yet People are still buying all the products that were produced last year. And farmers are just getting geared up to go to work here again in the spring. And we're planting all these crops with fertilizer that costs twice as much, fuel that costs three times as much as what we paid last year. You know, every single product that we touch has pretty much close to doubled, if not tripled. So when these crops go in the ground this year and they get harvested in the fall and people have to turn around and buy them next fall, what do you think the price of these crops are going to be from vegetables to milk to meat to every single thing in the stores? Like we're still buying food that's being produced at last year's prices. You imagine what's going to happen this fall whenever people have to start buying food at the, at the current input cost. Yeah. 
And I had some curious uh, reactions to my comments off the top because, you know, it's so easy to just cry socialism at every turn. But And someone said, you know, how's that going to help me afford X, Y, or Z? Well, I think it's quite clear that if the numbers of farms close here requires increased importation of goods, consequently we're going to pay more simply based on the uh, transportation distribution costs. So I don't know why people think that this is a some sort of poor mouth play being brought forward by farmers. You know, if we talk about doubling food production and then all of a sudden some of the advances we made have been cut because of things out of our control, then I think we're asking for a problem that's already here to make it even much more worse. Uh, anything else you want to add to the conversation this morning, Ian? Yeah, well, just one other comment that, to go back to what you just said there. I think people have the impression that if we don't grow it here in Newfoundland, we can just buy it somewhere else. And I think that's a large part of the, the issue that we have in this country is we became so used and dependent to being able to just go buy everything we need somewhere else, China, the U.S., wherever. We figure we can always just go ahead and buy it. But you'd think after the pandemic when we went through what we went through, when we went to the U.S. and we needed certain things and they just turned around and told us no, what do people think is going to happen if they go to other countries and they have food shortages there and we want to buy their food? Like one thing I don't think that people realize is I think it's close to 60 or 70 percent of the world's fertilizer comes out of Russia. And the Canadian government has just put a 35 percent tariff on anything that comes, any fertilizer that comes out of Russia. And I, I'm not even sure if they haven't banned it altogether. So the fertilizer prices and the feed prices and fuel prices, everything is just going to continue to rise and rise and rise. And the sad part is, is we, we understand that the consumer cannot afford to pay any more than what they're already paying. And it's just, I don't know how you call it, it's the perfect storm brewing and we're not really sure what's going to happen or how it's all going to play out, but... I really think it's a topic that people need to start to talk about because I think we're going to get in a situation down the road where there potentially might not be food on every shelf in every store like people are used to because every single farmer in this country is cutting back on their fertilizer usage, cutting back on their on on crops that they're used to planting. And, you know, it, it's going to play out over the next couple of years that food production is going to decrease, prices are going to increase, and and what are you supposed to do? Where are you going to buy the food? Do you have alternatives as opposed to potash or other fertilizers you buy? Whether And this is a, a completely uninformed person asking a, a, a hopefully reasonable question. Seaweed, kelp, manure, do you have alternatives versus what you've been relying on in years past? We are looking at every single option that we can. We actually just went out and bought a big new manure spreader this uh, this year so that we can make better utilization out of some of our solid manures here. And, you know, we're just looking at every option we can to cut costs to, to try and be able to grow the same amount of crops that we've always grown. But you can only cut so many corners before you... Uh, before your fields start to tell you that you're doing something wrong to them and we need to you know we need to get the nutrients that that we need like every crop that you plant you you know takes a certain amount of nitrogen potassium and phosphorus and if you don't give it to it then the crop just doesn't give you back what you know what it's able to so it, it's such a catch-22 like if you don't put your fertilizers on and you don't feed your plants right then uh, the fields and stuff aren't going to feed you back the way that they should Ian, I appreciate making time for the program. I wish you luck. Stay in touch. All right. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Ian Richardson, Dairy Farmer, West Coast. You want me to take Nick before the break? Okay. Line number two. Nick, here on the air. How you doing, Patty? I just wanted to join on about that gentleman's conversation there. 
Uh, I've worked out at the Potash Mines, Saskatchewan. They're huge mines. What's the problem that no one can go order from them? I mean, uh, I don't think it's a problem that you can't order from them. But when you have a massive interruption in any supply, yeah. then of course that massive operation in Saskatchewan must also have massive customers for their product already in place, right? Oh yeah, they do. They ship all the way to Australia, yeah. uh, basically. But I mean, you think our government would try to line something up with the Saskatchewan government to get something in place for these farmers, seeing that it's, uh, it could become a food security issue? I don't dispute it, but I think that we're seeing a lot of political conversation about government telling private sector what to do. All of a sudden, I find it fascinating to be honest. So, if I'm a private company uh, mining potash in Saskatchewan, I have standing contracts as far afield as Australia. All of a sudden, the government says, "Ah, uh, wait now." You're not selling to them. You're selling to Ian Richardson and in Cornerbrook. <laughs> That's the, I'm, not, I'm not saying demand them to sell it, but maybe they can line it up that they can get the shipments a bit quicker to come here and uh, have these farmers supplied with it instead of having them to wait on their regular uh, couriers that bring it uh, to the province. We're going to have to do something because food security, like we've learned a couple of hard lessons here. No one thinks it's, well, I don't think it's a good idea to be an isolationist, a protectionist, you know, close our borders down. But we've learned a lot of lessons about self-sufficiency here whether at the beginning of the pandemic like uh, protective personal equipment personal protective equipment the ppe conversation was really quite real and then we didn't have the opportunity to manufacture a lot of different things but if we're talking food security every idea that makes us a self-sufficient country as much as possible it's never going to be able to satisfy it 100 but that conversation because food and the scarcity of and the price of is a concern around the world we have the opportunity exactly. we have the land we have the ingenuity and we have the history that we should be able to do better nick i don't dispute that point at all and there's another thing patty very quick i was going to mention to you uh, something for you guys to look into i noticed an article the other day that elon musk and other ev producing uh automotive companies are having a very bad big issue with batteries exploding and the shortage of uh, I believe lithium for batteries yeah that's where the I next mean, big if they're, if, if they're trying to promote us to get electric vehicles maybe the safety should be put in there first instead of uh, just pushing a horse for the carriage because uh, from what they're talking and what they're saying from these companies Tesla being the top one of them all coming out with it and stating that they got a big issue with the batteries and when they explode if you ever look at a video like I did uh, they, they're like a blowtorch. It's like a human crematorium on wheels. The next and big move in the battery world. Okay. The next uh, thing in the battery evolution, and Toyota says by 2024 they will have moved away from polymer or lithium ion into a solid state battery, which will have a lot of issues regarding durability, reliability, explosiveness, uh, flammable issues, the distance to which the battery uh, fully charged can carry it. So, that, you know, for instance, I'm waiting until the solid state state is a big part of the conversation personally and yeah. toyota says by 2024 they think they're going to have those in all of their hybrids and evs so i think that's the next stage things will improve right you know the world of evs today is nowhere near ideal of course even infrastructure associated with evs is not where it needs to be of course but that's that's fair ball because i've read the same reports that you know there are some concerns on that front but i think solid state really addresses some of those issues or so i'm told by what i read anyway uh, nick appreciate the time what? Yeah, have you ever, just a quick one for you here, have you ever heard about back in the, I think it was the 50s or the 60s, one of the major uh, car producers, they bought up the plans for the hydrogen car and they actually burned them? Yeah. Yeah. We had this, the, the conversation in the 40s and 50s about moving towards different fuel sources, whether it be just away from gasoline and diesel, this is decades old. And you're right, that absolutely did happen.
maybe they should bring the plans back. <laughs> have a good day, and uh, we'll see what happens. Maybe our politicians can leave politics out of everything and just do their job. Not a bad idea. Sounds Thanks, Nick. You. All the best. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going down to St. Lawrence. Maybe we're going to talk Canada Forest Bar with the mayor. Uh, Steve. Okay. So, so Mayor Steve Brown, we appreciate your patience, sir. We'll get to you right after the break in the newscast. And then there's lots of time to speak with you. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the mayor of the town of St. Lawrence. That's Steve Ryan. Good morning, Mayor Ryan. You're on the air. Uh, town of St. Mary's, Teddy. Oh, Town of St. Mary's. I'm sure I know better. I even know you, Steve. Yes, you do. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on the show. What's on your mind, Steve? Or uh, Mayor Ryan, pardon me. Uh, the previous uh, caller you had said there about uh, politics and decisions. I'm going to talk about something that is big in politics, the fishery. Uh, Teddy, I'll just give you a brief history. We have a fish plant here in St. Mary's. Uh, it's here now about 45 years. Uh, it's closed for the past five, uh, apparently because of family, uh, family business and reasons and well, whatever. But we have a new owner. A new owner is local. New owner is willing to spend uh, money. He's had to spend a big amount of money already just to get a, a facelift on the plant and to get it up and running. But we haven't got a license. That's where we're running into some trouble. Uh, with the plant closed the past five years, uh, all our communities, I'm just one community here in some areas, like we have 10 communities joined together. We depend on handouts from the government uh, in the form of make work projects. Last year, our towns here alone had over a half million dollars in make work projects. That will be eliminated. Uh, we're the new owner, has their own product, their own supply. Um, and they're, they're not looking for, uh, for any handouts from the government. They're after spending over a half million dollars. They, uh, they don't have break water. That would have been the government's responsibility. Uh, save more money for the taxpayers. Uh, I, I'm kind of taken back because the first time ever that I know that the government do not want to come and make an announcement about jobs. Uh, you see in the news, I compare our uh, situation here to come by chance. Common Chance was all over the news, uh, was hoping to create 150, 200 jobs. Government had to pump in uh, $200 million for HOPE. We're hoping to create 150, 200 jobs in much-needed area down Route 90 of our province that's going to save money for the government. But our issue is the minister is not willing to sign off on a license. Just one second before we go uh, uh, any further. Two hundred million dollars in combine chance. What's what's that reference? Uh, they they invested some money in the combine chance, hoping to keep it idle. Remember to hope for. Yeah, I thought that was. Up. I thought that number was sixteen million. Sixty. I thought it was two hundred. Yeah, no, there was a, you know, the full pot of monies there were, like three hundred sixty odd million dollars. I went to a variety of things, some for the oh, okay. uh, keep West White Roads going and stuff. But I think the number was sixteen or seventeen oh. million to keep uh, come by chance at a warm idle because the concept there was, if it went full on cold, would make it that much harder to sell and to get back into operation. Yeah. I, and this is not yeah. for nitpicking and to correct you. No, I'm just making no. sure we get some numbers out there. Yes, okay. definitely. But for any amount of money, just to hope to get, create these jobs. So I'm saying this is our money, your money, and the taxpayer's money. This, this operator wants nothing. He, he's made it clear. Local operator uh, has pride in these communities, uh, father and son operation, and uh, they're more than willing to come in and invest their own money. Uh, the minister, where were we to? The minister visited our, our plant on um, 
early December. He was really impressed with the plant. Uh, he was the one thing that he stressed. He said, "We have no competition in this area." There's, I don't think there's one single plant operating no. in St Mary's Bay. No, there was seven. We're down to neither one now. Yeah. Uh, we're shipping out millions of pounds of crab here in a round of a year. Uh, and it's just lo- local, local operator. They have their own fleet of boats. They're doing a lot of shipping. Um, the minister is putting off the decision. I, I, I know the minister is under a lot of pressure. Uh, I, I feel for him in a way. Uh, the big companies are running the show. The big companies... I hate to say I think they're running the government when it comes to the fishery, uh, especially with this decision. Like, this is on the go now about a year, and we're after keeping low-key. Our reason for keeping this, this all low-key, like like you say, we say about Common Chance, was always in the media. We kept this low-key since last June because we want to come in under the radar of the big companies so they don't get their backs up and fight against us. But it's not after working. Uh, big companies know what go, what's going on in the fishery. We couldn't we couldn't squeak it by him. And uh, when the minister came in uh, in early December, he was taken back by the plant. We, we have a plant that's ready to operate, flick the switch. Um, and what's going on now in the fishery, and they're probably talking about the green report, but the re- green report never ever see what's, what came to the fishery this year, the increase in quotas, 30%, 40%. And next year, is, it's going to be a big increase also. Uh, like, we, we, need, we need an operator now. Uh, we went to the licensing board and made a presentation um, on April the 13th. And they were really impressed with our presentation. I think at the time, I think they had four applicants for new licenses. We were the only one ready to go and operate. Uh, they really, uh, uh, Mr. Ray Janstey even said, he said, you've done a good job in your presentation. And he said, I'll, I'll try to rush this up for you guys because they knew we were ready to go. And they know where the fisheries too. The listing board know where the fisheries too. So how it works, the listing board makes their decision. They turns it over to the minister. The minister never goes against the decision of the licensing board. Yeah, even though it's just a recommendation, yeah. but they, as you're, you're right there to say, yeah. that, you know, even when we talked about foreign concentration and Royal Greenland and stuff, that came across as a recommendation, but they generally get greenlit, rubber stamped. That's right. As e- but it's easy to agree with the board when the board says no. We have to be turned down previous times with a no from our own, the old owner, say, of the plant. But it's easy to say they followed up with a no because there's no pressure, and, you know, but when a, when a yes comes, and you have to go, like I said, this, this minister is really in with his back to the wall because his district is big into processing crap. So really, we're going to be some competition for his district. I, I know, but that's how it is. But competition is good. I have a business. If I never had competition, it gets out of hand. Right now, we have boats right here. I can see boats tied up to the wharf. They're tied up eight days. There's boats went yesterday because they had no other choice. That was their day they were given to go. The weather conditions were not, not ideal. And they're, gonna, they're still going to have a tragedy. Still going to be a tragedy on the water. And I, I know we're not the total solution here in St. Mary's, but we're, we're a big help. If, if we could put through eight or ten million pounds, which what they're what they're hoping to do, well, it won't be this year now because it's getting late in the season. But for next year, they're, they're hoping to put between 8 and 10 million pounds. 
that's a big help to the industry, to the boat owners. And competition outside of those four or five big owners is really, really important. Competition makes everything go around, make everything work. So, uh, again, the reference to competition, what do you mean by that? Because when the price is set, the price is in. So this year, when we talked Snow Crab, they landed at the recommendation coming from the processors, which was 760 a pound, and that's across the board, right? Yeah, but they, can't, they do pay more. Some companies will pay more. But it always goes on. They're probably paying seven seventy, say. Uh, it always went on before, uh, over and above. Well, like I said, the fishery is not a clean industry. Uh, <laughs> um, and right now, we, when we have boats tied up, competition will be they can't go. They can't go because their plant is full. If we have a plant here as competition, they can go because we can buy for you. We have processors. We we have we have workforce. We have. Uh, I, don't, I don't know, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty uh, getting depressing here. <laughs> and it could actually help address the trip limit issue, which is a concern for the inshore in particular, because the trip limits are based on, you know, whether or not we could overwhelm the processing sector, they wouldn't be able to handle all the product at the same time, I get it. Yeah. But if we had more plants that were able to operate, and I'm a little surprised at this because there's a couple of smaller operators that are actually able to get a license in the recent past where they were fighting upstream for quite a long time. And so, you know, it'd be good for the local economy, obviously. Obviously. So I'm a little confused with how this this isn't uh, going to happen uh, for the plant, or at least for now. So weird stuff. When you talk about just the uh, the increase in quota, so some 30%-ish in snow crab this year, we talk about the value of the fishery being around a billion dollars. The value of the snow crab fishery alone is going to be around a billion dollars this year, which is absolutely extraordinary stuff. Uh, last comment from you, uh, Mayor Ryan, before yeah, we go. Uh, one quick one. I'm after, I'm after hearing talk about outside buyers. Yeah. That shouldn't even be an option when we're here willing willing to go have a license put the license in the plant let us let us do our work let us let the people make a living in their backyard uh, like I said uh, I, I, I'm opening this up if CBC and NTV want to come in and show our facility I'd like to be able to show it we're talking about a petty and you're just trying to imagine it we, we have a state at our facility with all the state of our equipment there's just no reason we can't be operating uh, our MHA is after going out on a limb, but she only could go so far. Uh, this is above her. This is the, the minister, and I think it might have to go to the premier. I, t- uh, I think the premier should step in, uh, in and uh, rush this up a little bit and uh, get, the, get the people back to work. We don't want to depend on make work projects in September and October. Um, we have some pride here in our community, and, we, and, and the people have pride. They want to work for a living. We don't want handouts. Sure. Uh, I mean, I get it. I have good stock from St. Mary's Bay, as I say repeatedly. So you remember it would be Sherry Gambit Walsh, would she? Yes. Okay. I appreciate the time, Mayor Ryan. I'll do a little bit of a chase on this one. Uh, yeah, you know. hopefully, hopefully you get the, the minister to do a do response. Okay, happy to do it. I'm actually going to be out in that neck of the woods in the near future. If so, I'll, I'll drop you a line. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for everything you do. Thanks, Mayor Ryan. All Stay right. in touch. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Now, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, Susan Hyde's in the queue. She's the executive director of the Schizophrenia Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number three. Say good morning to the executive director of the Schizophrenia Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Susan Hyde. Good morning, Susan. You're on the air. Thank you, Patty, and hello to all your listeners. Um, I'm calling today because we're starting up another of our family recovery journey programs for families that live with schizophrenia and psychosis. Mm -hmm. So it's a five-week Zoom program um, where people can share their experiences and their coping skills and learn new ones. 
um, and learn effective ways to actually support your loved one who's in psychosis or has uh, schizophrenia, lives with that. Um, learn more about advocating for improved services and programs and support each other um, and learn how to support their loved ones in achieving their potential. So we start up in, uh, on Thursdays. We're going to have a 10 to 12, uh, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. course, and then we'll have the nighttime course from 6 to 8. And we start on May 17th, uh, sorry, May 19, and run through June 16. Now, last time we offered this, and we talked to you on, on Open Line, we had call, so many calls. We ended up with 30 people that took the course. And um, all we've heard from the folks that were in it is, thank you, uh, this is amazing. I can now talk to my young son. Um, I can now support my daughter and we're communicating so much better. Um, one of the really important things that I thought they, they all learned themselves or discovered was that they, they were also uh, stigmatizing because they were not, they didn't feel comfortable talking to their neighbors or their grandparents or whoever, because people either want to know you have schizophrenia and, or psychosis and you're doing well, uh, or they're not really all that, um, they don't really know how to handle it if you're not. So it's Mental Health Week, but you know, you, you and I both know that we make every day Mental Health Day, it's just not the week or, or even the year. Um, so we're encouraging people that, you know, if you know a family, if you have relatives, you've got somebody that's living with psychosis or schizophrenia, you know, please do your best to reach out to them and have some compassion. Ask about their, their loved one um, and how they're doing. You know, maybe make a meal or for them or just, just in some way show your compassion uh, because it's a very difficult disease. And uh, But there's a, we, we focus a lot on hope and recovery and family recovery journey is, is where we start with all of that. So we're, we just really appreciate you letting us ha have this time to, to give you an idea about, about the program and when it's starting again. Happy to do it. And I'm glad you got some good uptake after we spoke last time. You know, when we talk about things like stigma, which is an important part of the conversation, mm -hmm. some of the stigma is born out of myth. So in schizophrenia in particular, I don't know if it's the fault of cops and robber shows or what have you, but so many people think that if you have schizophrenia, you're automatically dangerous. Yes. And so that perpetuates the stigma that perpetuates the so-called shame that some might feel and the families and the individual themselves because that's the stuff that I think really seeps into society is that someone has schizophrenia that's a bomb waiting to go off which is just not the case it is not the case and thank you for saying that no the uh, apparently schizophrenia is the is the illness of choice for mainstream uh, films and TV shows and they don't ever get it right um, so I can't even watch them to be honest with you and I probably should but I, I can't because they're so wrong um, and, and the thing is that, you know, people are afraid that people with schizophrenia have are more violent than other people, um, which is absolutely not true. They're no more violent than the general population, as we call them. And if they're going to hurt anybody, they're more likely to hurt themselves. So we need to get it straight. We need to get it right. So we stop, you know, perpetuating the, the stereotypes. You know, one in three people with schizophrenia go on to f have full recovery, back to work, back to school, back to family. So we, we focus on that and how we can increase that number, actually. And see, these are important things to get out there because, you know, 
the reality is stigma has been long brewing in different corners and if it's based on you know not realizing or understanding what your neighbor might be dealing with your friend or your family member if we're not being accurate and fair with what a mental illness actually looks like and what the realities of dealing with that mental illness looks like then then we just makes things so much more difficult for society as a whole let alone the families or individuals that have psychosis or schizophrenia so i'm glad i asked that question because (laughs) I. i hear it all the time and maybe it is indeed born from the television screen which is just a terrible place for us to establish our understanding of mental illness correct <laughs> okay Susan so for people who'd like to take part in the five week zoom program what do they need to do all they need to do is give me a call at 777-3335 uh, leave a message if we're not here and we'll get back to you right away they can also email me at ed at ssnl.org so we're waiting for the calls and the emails and we can't wait to see new families uh, get involved because we after the program is over we also have now a Facebook page for the families to continue to communicate with each other, which is just amazing. Well, I'm glad you made time for the program this morning. Good luck with this particular uh, five weeks worth of Zoom and keep up the good work. All the best. You do the same. Thanks, Susan. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Susan Hyde is the ED Executive Director at the Schizophrenia Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hiya. Paul White. How you doing, sir? Grand this morning, Paul. How are you? Great. Uh, this is the, probably the third time in a row that uh, I've phoned you, third year in a row, about our wild Atlantic salmon. You know, salmon season is uh, up and coming June 1st. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Barry For- Mr. Barry Fordham was on earlier. Um, we, we've taken on a kind of a, a little side project as being spokes, I guess, spokespeople for the, the Fishery Guardians, Conservation and Protection. And, um, you know, maybe the, the, the listeners of Newfoundland and Labrador should, you know, could, should imagine that uh, we, we don't have any Atlantic salmon. Uh, that's a, I don't know, that's a very strange and, and disheartening thought, but anything is possible. And um, maybe it's like the canary in the coal mine. Um, the fishery guardians, I'll, I'll pick on them for a second. I mean, they, they get 15 weeks of work. They, you know, they use their own vehicles. Yada, yada, yada. When I took this on, Patty, the horror stories I heard about, you know, trying to go to work on your own vehicle, the kilometer piece that they're, you know, they're always fighting for, you know, not having um, cooperation from, from supervisors and managers. Horrendous. So what myself and Barry did, we went politically to Mr. Ken McDonald because he had some constituents. We met with Ken and, and we approached the first minister, which was Minister Jordan, a couple of years ago. Um, and that didn't go anywhere. Now, you know, we've approached Minister Murray, um, Joyce Murray, the new minister. Mm-hmm. The prime minister's mandate come out and said, you know, investments, new investments in water Atlantic salmon. And uh, just before the election last fall, the federal government invested $340 million into wild BC salmon, conservation and protection. We look at the budget this year, zero dollars. And in case people don't realize, like the wild Atlantic salmon recreationally, uh, a few years ago they'd done a study, I forget who it was, a consultant group, Atlantic Salmon Federation, <clears throat> they pegged that several hundred million into the, you know, the economies in, in Newfoundland, you know, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Quebec, that's the value. And so when we sat down and just, you know, averaged it out, said, Ken, <clears throat> uh, you know, Ken McDonald, you know, a couple of million dollars, it's a simple investment, Patty, to to extend this Guardian program. They should be hired on now. 
because, you know, the trout season's coming up May 2 for They don't go on until the first week of June. Um, they, they should be on now, too, with the season closed because I know of situations where people go in and catch trout. There's nobody watching the ponds or, or the rivers. And, you know, extend them. Extend them to October, November, when, you know, the, the salmon has spawned. <clears throat> Case in point, uh, two years ago, just before the season closed, a couple of days, the Regardians watching this pool of fish all pooled up, ready to spawn. Now, the poachers in the area knew that the Guardians were, you know, about to be laid off. So they waited. They got laid off on the 5th, and on the 6th that evening, there was 85 or 86 salmon taken in pack sacks. <coughs> Excuse me. Sold to restaurants, sold to, to locals. I mean, the, the calls came to me because, you know, I've been a, a spokesperson and outspoken about it. And I said, well, there's no one on call. Crime Stoppers reported to the I don't know what happened, but, I mean, Patty, that's just one example. Yeah, so a couple of things. Um, so inside of that world, and you mentioned uh, Minister Murray and zero dollars in for anything uh, regarding the Atlantic salmon conservation here, when in fact it's specifically mentioned in her mandate letter, and I've seen it, an absolute straight-up reference to Atlantic salmon conservation. And you say for the anglers, well, that's the only game in town for Atlantic salmon because there is no commercial salmon fishery here. The closest one is a very small one, something like 5,000 pounds, is St. Pierre and Miquelon. And then the next closest one is Greenland which we had some sort of quasi-relationship with to control the amount taken, even though no one's abided by it in Greenland. So that's yep. just a bit of a sidebar. So I just heard from a, a, a guardian. So the issue regarding the kilometer, right, they, we've lost a bunch of fish, fisheries guardians, and yep. consequently their area they have to cover is larger than it was before. They own their own personal vehicles, get 50 cents a kilometer, so we're asking them to do more and to cover a wider area for the same amount of money that goes nowhere close to covering the impact on the vehicle, cost of insurance, and, and gas and whatever the case may be. So those two things are important. Less of them to do more. And I yep. mentioned in the mandate letter, but no support financially for it. It seems quite odd. No, no financially. And uh, like, I'll, I'll give it to you know, Mr. McDonald. He's been back and forth phoning me for updates. And uh, I sent him the letters he required. And uh, you know, Clifford Smalls jumped in, speaking out uh, in Ottawa on the Fisheries Committee for you know, the salmon anglers. It, it's a very valuable resource. You, you, you were talking Mental Health Week. I heard a few of your callers on there. I mean, in today's age and stress, you know, so many people have taken it on to go in nature and, and practice fly fishing. But like, wh what if we, what if we can't do that anymore? And we got to act now. It, it's a simple, petty business equation: <clears throat> return on investment. A couple of million, whatever we average it out to. Uh, Kim McDonald got the numbers, just to extend their contract till the salmon are spawned, they're safe, um, and you know protect it now because it's it's a, it's a future generational thing it seems like in my personal opinion that the dfo just doesn't care somewhere along the line i think you know if there was other people leading the ship this would be solved by now but unfortunately it's not and this is my third year in a row calling you on this subject hopefully you know three is a lucky charm but the minister you know got to step it up and uh do the right thing you know, you're doing the BC salmon. We're we're left out over here. The way they like treat the fishery on the West Coast, the West Coast the treatment of the fishery is so vastly different than on the East Coast, whether it be sure. with wild stock and or aquaculture. They just do it differently, and no real good reason offered as to why, but uh, there you go. National standards be damned. I'll give you the last word, Paul, before I take a break for the news. Well, uh, just, you know, happy Mother's Day. Uh, my mom, who's not alive anymore, I mean, her, her favorite meal was wild Atlantic salmon when she boiled it and cooked it for me, and... Uh, 
I encourage all anglers and, and passionate people to to speak out about this and get those guardians on. The fishery guardians should be on six months of the year or more. Um, it, it's pennies with the return on investment because, you know, what, what happens when we can't go fishing anymore? The government loses, you know, I don't know what Newfoundland government would haul in, probably $100 million. So the sake of a few million, return on investment, $100 million. Patty, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, and I did ask uh, Barry about the uh, authority afforded to the Guardians, and uh, this very helpful uh, Guardian sent me some information. They're designated wildlife officers as well, and they're peace officers under the criminal code. So it's not just someone who's watching the river. They actually have some uh, absolute authority. I appreciate this uh, this morning, Paul. Thank you. Same powers. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, tons of time left to speak with you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four, Wayne, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you on this foggy day? Doing grand. How about you? A great foggy day, as the song says. Yes, sir. Yep, on top shelf. Anyway, Patty, I'm still uh, pursuing this little issue of mine, I guess kind of related to... Uh, the regional government and and to uh, our democracies in general, I guess, and looking at the abilities or the options that people have of asking questions of any level of government and expecting an answer. So as last time I talked to you, I was on the way down to Terranova to attend council meeting down there, which I did. And, of course, I wasn't allowed to ask a question which is standard procedure but they told me if i had questions uh, the deputy mayor said well if you have a question just send me an email and i'll send you an answer so i was thinking to myself yeah well that might be but there's a lot more to getting an answer than just the words and i think it's important and i guess our federal government provincial government thinks it's important to have a question period so that the questioner can uh, eyeball the person who's providing the answer and read perhaps something into the body language. But you can't have this option at the uh, town council in Terranova. And the other item that was kind of burning me at the time was getting a copy of the agenda. And they've standardized the procedure down there now in toll so that the agenda is only available to the public after it's been voted on at the kind of the opening motion of the council meeting. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And, and if you follow that process, there's nothing in the procedure which says that, and, and we understood this, that you can't add an important item to the agenda at a moment's notice. And I kind of get that, but if you think of the implications of it, I mean, if council's got a contentious issue before them, they could decide not to put that on the agenda and to hold it off the agenda until such time as there's either a small attendance at the meeting or no attendance at the meeting. I thought that was a little crack in the system that somebody needs to think a bit about. And the case in point, I guess, a couple of years ago when they introduced what they call property tax, and that was done, I believe, under a certain amount of pressure from municipal affairs. And the version of property tax they have down there will behooves most people because the amount of tax you pay bears no resemblance to the value of your property. And uh, so I took it upon myself to go through the municipal assessment records that were current at the time that the tax was brought in. And what I discovered was that 
46% of the taxpayers are really being overtaxed and 54 are undertaxed, with the 54 being the high-value properties are paying a much lower tax rate than the people with the lower-value properties. Now, they'll say, well, we don't really have a mill rate. But if you have property tax, you got to have a mill rate because that's an essential component of it, is my, yeah. my understanding of it. Well, of course it is. It's the only thing that the councils can adjust because an appraised value is what it is. So the only thing councils can do is apply a mill rate to come up with the eventual tax, yeah? Well, Patty, you and I have pretty well a common understanding of what property tax is. But in the Municipalities Act, it talks about property tax, but it also introduces an, another term there called minimum tax. And this is what they applied downtown all, so that everybody whose properties are under a half million dollars pays the same amount of tax. If you're over a half million dollars, your tax, your mill rate is 0.7 mills. Is that interesting? The people down in Valley Haley and Prince William Estates or King William Estates, whatever it is, and Waterford Bridge Road, they love a system like that where the highest value of property owners pays the lowest tax rate, wouldn't you think? Uh, yeah. I would think so. You know, but that's where, you know, we can hyper-focus on one area or another, Terranova in this instance, when we talk about regionalization. But you and I have had similar chats in the past where we know full well it's not going to look and feel the same regardless of, of, of what part of the province we're talking about. And there's some good examples that I've been trying to lean on here is like Lab City Wabush. The governments remain in place. No one loses their identity, but they cooperate with cost-sharing for the Mike Adams Rec Center. Then you look at the oh, – see if I can remember now properly uh, – Harbour Main, Chapel's Cove, Lakeview. Yeah, and then a partnership with, I think it's uh, Conception Harbour, Colliers, Avondale. They have collapsed their waste management to save even just uh, Mayor Doyle's community of Harbour Main $125,000 because as opposed to four contracts, one service contract, longer extension, another form of cooperation, regionalization without losing the identity of your town. So we've got to, you know, we've got to spread these conversations around and look at what it might look in uh, Rodington, Bidearm, and Hawks Bay, Terranova, Lab City, Bush and for Mayor Doyle and his crowd because it is going to have to take a massaged approach in different areas. Yes, I agree with that, Patty. One, one shoe doesn't fit all. I kind of understand that. My principal concern with regional government is there's nowhere defined how an individual ratepayer can get his body before that group and have a question, pose a question and have a question answered. It's yep. a democracy of it. I mean, this is all being imposed upon us by another level of bureaucracy without much provision, as far as I can see, in what's already written in the act anyway, to allow people to have their say. I mean, to have your say at the ballot box was a lot of BS, as far as I'm concerned. You get to mark an X one time every four years, and then if you have a gripe anywhere in between, that way you, you got no access to anything, really. And a lot of people in this place are afraid to ask a question for some reason, which I, I don't quite understand, like why anybody would be fearful of standing up in a meeting and asking a question. Like, where would that come from? This sounds like Soviet Union to me. And Yeah, I, well... Just put away their fears, you know, and stand up if they have a question and do it. But they got to have an, an avenue to to be able to ask the question, and that avenue needs to be mandated in legislation. 
and right now it isn't. Sure. Some of the fear that people have might be based in reality, might be manufactured, because, you know, the thought is asking questions of people in power puts you in a precarious spot for pushback. And, you know, in some cases that might be true, but we should shelve that in full, because in reality... There's, well, I guess some people can indeed feel some negative ramifications if they're questioning those leaders or business leaders or political leaders, but, boy, we've got to ask them because if not, the what goes on behind the closed doors and in the shadows is no good for anybody. Well, we all know where we are in our little democracy here now, and part of that might be a consequence of not asking the appropriate questions at the appropriate time or <laughs> not being given the opportunity to ask the appropriate questions at the appropriate time. So there's a hell of a cost to not drumming up enough courage to stand up and ask a question. And the cost will always be borne by the people who don't ask them, as far as I'm concerned. So on, as far as regional government goes, I think that there needs to be a close scrutiny of the legislation that indoctrinates that and to make damn sure that there's better provisions in it for the people who have to bear the burden out here to be able to ask questions and cross-examine. That's what I'd say. I think you're right on the money, Wayne. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, Patty. You have a good weekend. The very same to you. All your mothers out there. Absolutely right. Thanks, Wayne. You take care, buddy. All right. Bye-bye. It is indeed uh, last break of the day, last break of the week, and then we are coming back to speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's try line number two. Trent, you're on the air. Patty, what's happening, buddy? Not too much, man. You? Oh, this is it, my Patty. Before I get into my topic, I just want to pick your brain for one quick second. I want you to pick your Stanley Cup finalist. Who do you got going this year, you think? Florida, Colorado. I, I think I'm on the same way. I, I got Florida, Colorado, or Tampa Bay, Colorado. That's who I got. Yeah, I mean, the East is wicked tough, right? It could easily be Tampa Bay or maybe even Toronto or Florida. Don't say that. Don't say that. I, I don't think they have any chance to make it to the final. <laughs> but, you know, the East is very, very thick. There were something like eight teams with 100-plus points in the East. I mean, it could be Boston. Oh. I don't know. But uh, the West got some really top-quality teams, but the depth in the East is wild. Nice, but uh, Patty, uh, the reason I called in this morning or this evening or just all this afternoon now, I just want to touch on uh, a dangerous intersection here in the city. Uh, I live in Airport Heights, and that uh, that intersection is at Fortune Cove, Major Path, and Airport Heights, as everybody well knows. It's, uh, lately, there's, uh, I've, I've been living there now for almost 11 years, and it seems like to me that that is a very, very high accidental rate, uh, I guess that's a word I can use, uh, there, there's at least one or two accidents there a month, at least. And I came across one uh, Monday night coming up from downtown, and uh, the front end of the vehicle, man, I tell you, it, it was totally, totally destroyed, and something needs to be done with that intersection before someone loses a life, and like, like I said, I've been there 11 years, and I'm, I'm willing to bet that you're probably looking at one or two accidents at this intersection uh, a month. You know what's remarkable is I saw your name and I saw my subject line simply says dangerous intersections and immediately I thought, boy, that one on the way to the airport on Portugal Cove Road is pretty dangerous. Uh, so especially if you're trying to turn left into the old portion of the Cove Road down towards Patanguachine and stuff versus go straight to uh, continue on to the airport. It's, that's funny that you bring up that one because that's the first one that came to my mind. Well, 
Oh, I don't know which way is the most dangerous. But yeah, no, no, no. But I, I didn't mean to say like that. But I mean, like, if you're turning, like, if you're on Forest Grove Road turning into Airport Heights, I mean, like, you can see the traffic that's coming toward, like, from the airport. I mean, there's a bend in the road, so you can sort of see, like, the train of traffic that's coming around the bend. But if you're turning from Forest Grove Road on the major path, you can't see nothing. Sure. The traffic in the turning lane coming into Airport Heights has your view completely blocked. And, like, as we all know, I think when God made five, I think he put it in. I think he put the machine up in Airport Heights because you know this is we hardly see any sun up there because it's always so freaking foggy. But I mean, it, you know, like I said, turning on the major path in Wipin is, is the most dangerous option. And like, I know a lot of it falls on like the drivers for like taking risk and like the, you know like that. But I mean, some, the risk needs to be taken from the drivers, and that needs to be uh, a turn on in, uh, arrow only because, like I said. One of these days, it's going to be too late, and the government, uh, not the government, the city is going to be uh, running around and saying, oh, something needs to be done, and it needs to be done ASAP. But, like I said, they need to get, the, they need to get on the ball now. Like, they can go out and do roundabouts and punch out in the road for traffic calming measures, but I think this one need, really needs to be looked at. No doubt about it. Trent, I appreciate the time. Thanks for this. All right, Patty. Peace out, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, that one's particularly wicked. Uh, let's go to line number one. Catherine, you're on the air. Hey, buddy, how are you doing? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Not too bad. I was having a cheese and crackers when David called. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I wanted to talk to you, Patty, about this week is um, Mental Health Week, as you know. And um, we often talk about stigma and reducing stigma around mental illness. Um, and, and it's been difficult. It's been slow going and uh, very difficult. Um, And I'm speaking from almost four decades of um, community service in in that area. Um, But there's something I'm not sure you're aware of that I think adds to the stigma. And that is some organizations that work with clients um, who have mental health, mental illnesses, addictions, or homelessness issues, they have a policy um, within the organization that clearly states um, that if, if a staff member discloses and in any way that they have a mental illness or that they struggle with um, such or did struggle with such or whatever, um, they're dismissed from their jobs. Where does this happen? Um, I'm not going to say the organization in particular. I don't think that would be fair to do. Um, I think some digging wouldn't be too hard, but um, I learned this about, oh, Maybe six years ago, five five years ago, I was at a summit, and uh, we had a expert um, speaker come in um, to speak on lived experience, and it was really good. And uh, you know, all types of people attended. It was a great attendance, and um, this woman spoke out and said. Um, yeah, and uh, it could be very useful um, to dis- to um, destigmatizing and to um, 
you know, helping people when it's when it's talked about or used in the right context and right situation. Um, and she spoke up and she said, now she said, I know I'm going to be fired right now for saying this, but she said, I deal with a mental illness. And I was like, what? And sure enough, I checked it out. She was fired. Um, another person was fired um, from a different incident. But yeah, they have a policy where like, and I understand, Patty, that you have to be um, at a level of certain wellness to work in any job, you know, but especially as a frontline worker. I get that. It's just, but that's no different than a physical illness, right? If you have diabetes, you have epilepsy, you have asthma or COPD, you know, often people um, are treated for it you know, by medication or physiotherapy or whatever the case might be. And if it's not under control, you may have to be off work for a time. So I get that. But to me, it's not okay. If I was a client of that organization to say to a worker, oh, my goodness, my allergies are killing me today. No trouble to know is change of seasons. And that worker comes by and says, yeah. I know what you mean. Like, I, you know, I've gone through so many boxes of tissues. So that's okay to share. But if I come in or someone comes in and says, oh, my, boy, I tell you, my anxiety has been out of whack this week, the worker cannot disclose that they have an anxiety disorder as well. They will be fired. It's strange and completely unfair, unfounded, and I'd love to know the name of the organization. But, Catherine, we're up against the clock at 12, but I appreciate you making time for the show and hope you have a great weekend, and congratulations on your award. Oh, thank you very much. Take good care of yourself. All right, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. She did indeed have the last words, so on behalf of myself and David, uh, happy Mother's Day to all of you moms and people acting in the role of mom, especially my own mother, my wife, and my sisters, Lisa, Jennifer, and Andrea. Happy Mother's Day to you all. Uh, we will indeed pick up this conversation on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.